Thanks, Jeff. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your words uh, to us in the Bible, these words that speak about what it means uh, to uh, live in relationship with you. Lord, they speak to us of the gospel, uh, the grace by which we come into that relationship and then how to live. And so, Father, we pray as we reflect on these words now that you would give us understanding, that you would draw us to yourself, uh, that you would show us your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever visited a country where you don't know the language. Uh, maybe you've been even to an event locally and it was a, an event run by another language group and so you were there and you didn't understand the language there either. Or maybe your first language uh, is not English and so you, having moved to Australia, you struggled or maybe even still struggle to understand what people are saying. Trudy was telling me just before that that's their, they, that was their experience and they moved here. They didn't understand English and so uh, didn't really understand what people were saying. A few years ago, I got the opportunity to visit some friends of mine in Germany and my German was nowhere near good enough that I could understand what people were saying. And it was the first time in my life where I've ever been in that situation where I didn't understand what was going on because I didn't understand the language. And it was incredibly alienating at some, t at some points. You could be sitting in a room full of people who were obviously enjoying themselves, laughing about something, and have absolutely no idea what was going on. We played the board game Dominion. I don't know if you've ever played that. And I thought, wow, that's a great idea. Let's play a board game together. I hadn't thought through the implications of the fact that the board game was in German. Uh, and I'm bad enough at the best of times remembering the rules for games, let alone when uh, the rules are in another language. Needless to say, I struggled to be competitive, but at least I had an excuse for not, uh, for not winning. But what if... When you went to church every Sunday, that was your experience. What if every Sunday you felt alienated because people were speaking to you in a way, in a language that you couldn't understand? Maybe for some people here that is a relatively regular occurrence because, as I said before, maybe you've come from another country and you struggle with English. But what if nobody understood except the one person who was speaking? What would be the point? Well, that question and idea is at the heart of this passage, what Paul is talking about. Paul's continuing here a discussion of spiritual gifts that he began back in chapter 12, these gifts, these spirit-empowered gifts and abilities that God had given to people for the good of the church. Back in chapter 12, Paul had spoken about how God has given those gifts to people uh, to each believer for the good of the church. Then in chapter 13, he showed how those gifts from God need to be used in love, in a spirit of love, rather than selfishness. And Paul continues that theme here in chapter 14. He begins in verse 1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the spirit, especially prophecy. The rest of the chapter then goes on and explains what it means to use gifts in love. And it does that by comparing two gifts that the Corinthians seem to prize. Uh, those two gifts were prophecy and tongues. They were the gifts that they prized most of all. But 
before we look at what Paul says about uh, comparing those gifts, it's helpful to stop and understand and get clear on what he means when he's talking about gifts of prophecy and the gifts of tongues. So a few weeks ago in the sermon on chapter 11, I explained what prophecy is, and I said then that prophecy is the spirit-empowered act of making known the message about Christ that was for ages kept hidden, but which has now been revealed through the gospel. Prophecy is making known through the Spirit words about Christ, the words of the gospel about Christ. So on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came on believers not only to give them new birth into the family of God, but also to empower every single believer to some degree or another in making the gospel known. It was the beginning of God's worldwide missionary movement. That's what I said in the sermon back on chapter 11. If you want to go and follow that up, I'm not going to make the case for that again now, but if you're interested, you can go back and listen to that sermon online. So that's prophecy, but what about tongues then? Well, tongues really just means languages. Paul has used that word in that particular way at the beginning of chapter 13. He says in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of angels or of men but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So you could translate that simply as, if I speak in the languages of men or of angels. I speak in the languages but do not have love. So the gift of tongues then, in some way or other, is really the gift of speaking in other languages. And the place, again, where we first encounter that miraculous gift is on the day of Pentecost, and that's recorded in Acts chapter 2. If you've got your Bible there in front of you, you might want to turn to Acts chapter 2. So there in Acts chapter 2, the apostles have been waiting. God had told them, Jesus had told them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come to them. And then the Holy Spirit does come. He, he comes on the apostles and they're filled with the Spirit and they start speaking about Jesus. The problem is that the crowd in front of them are people from all over the known world. They've come from all through uh, the, the Roman Empire. They've gathered here in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And we're told there in verse 9 that there are people, there are Parthians, there are Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. But even though the people come from all over the, pl all over the place and speak all these different languages, the remarkable thing is that all of them hear the apostles speaking in their own language. Now we need to understand in Acts chapter 2 that the miracle there is not a miracle of hearing. So it's not that the apostles speak Aramaic and then the people who are listening hear it in their own language. The miracle is not a miracle of speech, sorry, of hearing, but a miracle of speech. That is, the Spirit comes powerfully on the apostles and gifts them in order to speak these languages that they did not know. And it's important to realise that the purpose of that was in order that they could communicate the gospel to the people who were there. The result of that miracle is that 3,000 people from all these different places and language groups 
become believers, and when they return with the gospel to their homeland, they can communicate the gospel that they've learned and believed to the people where they are in their own language. Pentecost is often seen, and rightly seen, as a reversal of what happened in Genesis at the Tower of Babel. So there God frustrated the languages of of human beings. God confused language as an act of judgment on humanity because of their rebellion against him. But whereas at Babel God confused language, now at Pentecost God undoes that through the power of the Spirit in order that the gospel can go out and be clearly communicated across language barriers. As I've said previously in the Sermon on Chapter 11, with regards to prophecy, we need to understand the gifts of the Spirit primarily with respect to their relationship to the gospel and particularly their relationship to God's worldwide gospel mission. Prophecy in the Old Testament was about making known the mystery of the Messiah who was to come. Prophecy is now about chiefly making known the mystery of the Messiah which has now been revealed in Christ. So too the gift of tongues needs to be understood in relation to its function with respect to the gospel. It is a miraculous gift of God so that the gospel can go out. So it's not, first and foremost, a miraculous gift for our own edification, but it's a miraculous gift for the sake of the gospel. It also is worth saying, I think, that we should not make a hard distinction between what we might think of as miraculous, the miraculous gift of speaking in other languages and what we might think of as the normal gift of speaking in other languages. The reason we ought to be careful about making that kind of distinction is because in the Bible, both are actually miraculous gifts of God. That is, being able to do anything is actually a gift of God. For example, what we think of as natural is actually God enabling us to do it. So when we think of breathing, we think, oh, well, I don't need God in order to breathe. That just happens. But the Bible's view of the world is, no, God must be intervening in the world all the time in order for us to do anything. He's sovereign over the whole world. Uh, To breathe is a gift from God. There's not this hard distinction in the Bible between the miraculous and the so-called ordinary. So to speak a language uh, miraculously and to speak a language that we've had to learn through three or four years of hard work is still an ability that comes from God. That said, God can absolutely give people this miraculous ability to speak in other languages uh, and indeed... You might think this is a bit weird, but whenever I study the biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek or Aramaic or something like that, I often pray that God would give me understanding. Trusting that he can enable me to do above and beyond what I can ask or imagine, but also working hard because I know that God also gives us the ability to use the other natural gifts that we have in order to learn things as well. So we can pray then, as we think about this gift, we can and ought to pray for those that we send out from our church to other parts of the world. We can pray that God would enable those missionaries to speak and communicate clearly in the languages that they need in the places where they're going. 
We ought to pray that God might enable them to do that miraculously. Absolutely. But we also ought to expect that it may take three or four years of hard work for them to get there. In God's providence, that may be his uh, plan for them as well. But we pray because we know that God can do it and we know that whether it's miraculous or ordinary, the gift still must come from God and through God. And we pray because we know that it's only as God gives that gift that the gospel can go out to the nations. So we've thought a little bit about prophecy and the gift of languages. What does Paul want to say here in 1 Corinthians 14 about those two gifts? As I said, his main purpose is to show how they use their gifts in love with respect to these two gifts. So in verse 2, he begins his comparison between these two gifts. He says in verse 2, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. That is, if I come here and I speak in a language that you, that you don't know, then I'm not actually speaking to you. The only person who's edified by that is me. Vielleicht ist kann ein bisschen Deutsch sprechen, aber es wird nutzlos sein, weil ihr alle nicht mich verstehen könnt. It's useless. I understand what I'm saying, but you don't, maybe. And that's what Paul is saying here. It might be a fancy crowd-pleasing move to speak in another language, but the only person that you're speaking to is yourself and God. In contrast, in verse 3, Paul says, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. That is, if you speak in a language that people can understand, people can actually be encouraged and built up by that. It actually does you good. Likewise, verse 4, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. It's great for me. But the person who prophesies edifies the church. How much more useful is that for everybody? Paul is not saying here that speaking in tongues is... He's not sort of saying, look, speaking in tongues is for personal use, so do it there. He's talking about what we do when we're gathered in worship. Uh, he says, speak in words that people can understand. In fact, he likens speaking in an unknown language to making random sounds. It's like when a two-year-old picks up a recorder or starts banging on the piano. Maybe that's what it sounds like when you start banging on the piano as well. It's, it, 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 it's not melodic. It, it's not beautiful. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't build anyone up. That's what it's like, Paul says, when you speak in a language that people can't understand. The point of this miraculous gift of languages is not to impress people or to show off what God is doing in your life. The purpose is to make the gospel known. In fact, Paul goes as far as to say that speaking in a language that others can't understand is an act of judgment. So he quotes in verse 21 from a passage in Isaiah 28. He says, With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me. In Isaiah, what God is speaking about there is he's, he's saying, I've sent my prophet to you 
and you haven't listened. I've sent my prophet and you haven't listened, and so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to conquer you through another nation that doesn't speak your language, and the judgment will be is that you will not, still will not understand. <laughs> I've given you the opportunity to hear, but you haven't. Now I'm going to send people who are going to speak and you won't know what's going on. Speaking in a language that people don't understand is God's act of judgment. And that is why Paul goes on in that rather mysterious few verses from verse 22 to 25. And he explains that speaking to people in an unknown language is a sign for unbelievers. That is, it's a sign... It's, it's a sign of God's judgment. What is it a sign of? It's a sign of God's judgment because they've rejected his message. Again, because, like in Isaiah, because they've heard the message, rejected it, then God's judgment on them is that they still cannot hear, they still cannot understand. It's a bit like the parables, what Jesus says about the parables in the Gospels. On the other hand, if they come in, and people are making known the good news of what God has done in a language that they can understand, then they will be convicted and saved. One is an act of judgment, speaking in words they can't understand. Another is an act of salvation, speaking in words they can understand. Now, you might think it's completely ridiculous and unbelievable that anyone would actually consider running a church service in a language that people can't understand. Of course, it was happening in... 1 Corinthians 14, but it also happened in the church before the Reformation. In fact, until the 1960s, the language of the Catholic Mass was Latin. But that's what the Catholic Church did. They did their church services in Latin until 1960. And as recently as 2011, the former Pope, Pope Benedict, declared that bishops should reintroduce the Latin Mass if their parishioners asked for it. They should reintroduce a service which no one understands. A friend of mine was uh, recently service leading in his church on Reformation Day, and he decided to begin the service by reading from a psalm in Latin. His point was, this is what it was like before the Reformation you would go to church and not understand. And the reason that the Roman Catholic Church did that was because they didn't think that people needed to hear and understand the words of God. They thought that God's grace was communicated through their rituals rather than through God's words in the scriptures. So people didn't need to understand but Paul completely explodes that idea because he says here that at the heart of being built up in the faith is words that make sense. If you can't understand it, it's pointless. God wants us to understand that the message of the gospel, the upbuilding of saints, comes not through flashy crowd-pleasing tricks, but through the intelligible and understandable communication of the good news in words that make sense. God doesn't want us to impress other people. He doesn't want us to impress each other. He doesn't want us to impress unbelievers. God wants us to love one another and love outsiders by giving ourselves to being clear. 
Now, it's unlikely, I suspect, that anytime soon anyone here is going to get up and speak in another language uh, that other people don't know. But that principle of intelligibility or that principle of being clear and making sense can be applied in other ways as well. So, for example, we could go the route of the Roman Catholic Church and we could replace meaning, meaningful words, with ceremonies. We could can the service as a sermon and instead I could minister through interpretive dance. <laughs> Speaking powerfully. Uh, we could replace words with pictures. Again, before the Reformation, that's what the church did. Because the service was in Latin and people couldn't understand it, they thought, well, we've got to at least communicate something. So we'll make stained glass windows and communicate the gospel that way and we'll put Jesus up on a cross. The problem was that people misunderstood it. Luther, for example, thought when he looked at the cross, he didn't see God's love and God's grace, he, he saw God's judgment. He thought God must be very angry with us because we've killed his son. Pictures might tell a thousand words, but if no one explains to you what they mean, then you'll get the wrong idea. We might be tempted to prioritise our felt emotions or the impressions that we get in certain activities over and above meanings clearly communicated to our brains in words. Lots of religions around the world do that. They, they focus on mindless repetition or things like frenzied dancing. Whatever it is, they hope that by doing those things that somehow they'll draw nearer to God. Somehow they'll be edified, lighting a candle. Hopefully that will bring me nearer to God. But God says, no, he's chosen to use words that make sense in order to make himself known. He could have given us a photo album. He could have given us an artwork or a mural. He could have given us a movie. But God gave us words in a book that makes sense. So Paul wants the Corinthians to major on that, on things that make sense over fancy crowd-pleasing gifts. Then in the very last section, he continues that theme, if you like, of making sense by focusing on good order. Things need to be done in the right kind of order and in the right way in order that they can still be intelligible. So that theme is there in verse 33. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Verse 40. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. That good order is expressed in two ways in this particular section. So in verses 26 to 32, Paul says that people ought to take turns. It seems that the Corinthians were all eager to have a say, and so they were talking over the top of each other. Maybe that's a bit what it's like at your dinner time conversation. Uh, maybe you need a, <laughs> a bit of good order so that you can hear what's going on. The thing is, if people are talking over the top of each other, is that you don't really get a sense of what's going on. It's not edifying. Paul says, look, do it in a good order uh, and that will be edifying. Take turns. Second, he says in verses 33 to 35, that the proper relationship between men and women needs to be upheld. So he says in verse 34, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, 
for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now those are pretty outrageous words maybe in our context and we looked again at some of those things back in chapter 11 uh, in more detail uh, and you might find it helpful to go back and to listen to that sermon again. But we know from chapter 11 that Paul does not mean when he says women should remain silent in the churches. We know from chapter 11 that he doesn't mean they must remain absolutely silent because in chapter 11 he says that they are involved in praying and prophesying in the church. So what does he mean here when he says that women should, women should remain silent in the churches? What is that uh, constrained by? Well, those verses, verses 34 to 35, seem to relate back to what he said in verse 29 to 32, where he talks about prophets weighing what is said. Okay, so someone would speak, and then there would be an evaluation by other prophets. There's a lizard at the front of the church. Uh, the prophets would speak, and then uh, someone else, would, the other prophets would come along and evaluate what's said to, to see whether or not it uh, is legitimate, whether or not it is uh, authentic and true. And Paul is saying here that it would be inappropriate for the women to take part in that evaluation. That is, it would be inappropriate for them to publicly evaluate, call into question, and correct the teaching of the men, especially their husbands and the church leaders. So in the language of chapter 11 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that would be a woman uncovering her head by stepping out from under the proper authority relationship that God has established. Okay, So he's not saying that they can't pray, or speak words uh, about Christ that build others up, but he is saying that they ought not to be involved in the evaluation uh, of what is said. The point, at the end of the day, is that Paul wants us to understand, God wants us to understand that our worship services should not only make sense, but they ought to be done decently and in good order. Good order not only in terms of one person speaking at a time, but also in terms of people taking their appropriate role. So before we finish up, what might that look like in practice? Let me give a few thoughts about what that might look like here, or what that looks like here. Well, first of all, it means that people have, are, are given appropriate roles. So, as I said again a few weeks ago, we don't ask women to preach or to teach in the church, to, to, to preach the sermon. We think that would be... Uh, the kind of the wrong in terms of chapter 11. Uh, we don't ask children to preach or teach. We don't ask new believers to preach or teach. Uh, we do ask people of all kinds uh, and of all levels of uh, Christian maturity uh, and so on, all kinds of different backgrounds, we do ask people to be involved in lots of different ways. Uh, we in terms of good order, we have a service leader who plans things. Steve was uh, leading this morning and he makes sure that things are done decently and in good order so that people are not jumping up and speaking over the top of each other. So too, we not only have times when there's one person speaking or teaching, uh, or, but there are times when others can contribute. So we do that together in singing in our, in our afternoon congregation. We have times of group discussion and group prayer. So too, after the 
main service is finished, we have people praying for others, we have time to discuss with each other the things that God has been doing in our heart and our life, speaking to us in his word. But those times when we're doing those things together are not just random, but they're ordered. There's a, there's, a, there's a pattern, there's an order, so that things are done for building people up. Sometimes, too, we have time for questions at the end of the sermon or the end of the service. But the idea, again, is not to cross-examine, but to genuinely seek to understand. And in those kinds of ways, we seek to implement the principles that God is giving us here in this passage. That is, the key is to build people up through meaningful, clear words about God and Christ and the work of the Spirit and that we do those things decently and in good order, recognising the roles and responsibilities that God has entrusted to us in different ways. Gathering together as God's church here at the branch or wherever it is that you meet as a believer is one of the most important things that we do. But when we do that, God wants us to be clear. He wants us to be clear because the gospel goes out through clear words that make Christ known and that build people up in a most holy faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these words in the scriptures that do make sense. And Lord, they don't always make sense to us Straight off the bat, Lord, sometimes we have to wrestle with them to seek to understand them. But Lord, we thank you that by your spirit you communicate to us your very mind. And uh, Lord, we pray that since you and your grace have communicated clearly to us, Lord, we ask that you would help us to do all that we can to communicate clearly to others. Lord, to having, uh, having digested the word for ourselves, believed it, and put our trust in Jesus, that we would then speak those words to others, empowered by your Spirit for the salvation of many. Lord, we pray uh, that all that we do when we gather together in church on Sundays, wherever we meet, whether that's here in this church or in another church, Lord, that when we meet as Christians through the week, that all the things that we do will be done to build one another up, words of truth that change us, encourage us, strengthen us and equip us to live as your people in this world. Lord, we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.